Today we're going to start a, a new mini-series. We're going to be looking at uh, the pastoral epistles. That would be 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. In this case, the books are so short. Uh, 1 Timothy is six chapters, 2 Timothy is four, and Titus is three. That's a total of 13 chapters. So I've been reading them as one whole. I want to know what the big picture is before I dive into it. And it turns out that as I went through um, this book, several themes jumped out at me. So instead of going verse by verse, I will probably tackling themes, and I suspect I'll be at this for, for a handful of weeks. Uh, some of the themes that jumped out at me was, one was uh, faith, one was teaching, one was persecution, one was delivery, one was conscience. But the one I'm going to look at today is the word committed, committed. That word seemed to jump out at me. Now, before I jump into this particular um, study, I want to talk to you about these three epistles. These three epistles are written to a pastor. I don't know how to explain this, but these three speak to me in a way far beyond anything a deacon or a church member could understand. You understand? It's like reading a parenting book and you've never been married and had kids versus reading a parenting book and you have had kids. It's just not the same thing. And I tell you what, after the advice of a good friend of mine, when I have been reading this, when I see it start off and it goes, Oh, Timothy, I cross out Timothy and I write my name. Odolph, as if Paul was writing to me, his son in the ministry. And when I consume that book that way, it becomes so much more um, endearing, so much more convicting, so much more urgent in so many ways. So I want to look at this particular passage and I want to look at it from the standpoint of committed now, the word committed is used has many definitions. <clears throat> uh, we could say, I committed a felony. Well, that's not the one we're talking about. We can say, committed Dolph to the insane asylum. Well, that's not the one we're talking about either, right? The word committed that we're using is to be entrusted. My first reference I would like to go to is in 1 Timothy 1.11. And this is what it says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. This is Paul talking to his son in the ministry. And what he's saying is God took this word. And what he did is he committed it to Paul in a fiduciary, in a stewardship, in a servant, in a soldier type way in a curator type way of preserving it and protecting it and sharing it. And when he committed the word, it is entrusted to a minister unlike it's committed to a deacon, unlike it's committed to a member of the church. This is a tool we rely on more in preparing this message. And it's very typical of a message there's probably close to 30 hours of just in the Bible preparing a message. 
Y'all, how many of you spent 30 hours in the Bible this week? How many of you spent 30 hours in the Bible last week? How many of you spent 30 hours in the Bible the week before? That's my job. Do you understand? The word is, means something way more to a preacher than it does to a member. And when you read these passages, you'll say, oh, yeah, that's something I should do. I read it as my job description, and that's something I got to do. I want to talk about this word committed so you understand it. There's two times it was used, both for Joseph, that I would like to use to, as an illustration. In Genesis 39, 7 and 8, you remember Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. The older 10 brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. They wanted him gone. Dad played favorites, and they hated him. And they sold him into slavery, and he ended up underneath a man named Potiphar. And as he worked under Potiphar, it was kind of like he started off as the mailboy, and he ended up the CEO. This is what it says. This is Genesis 39, 7 and 8. Notice the language. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house. He hath committed all that he hath to my hand. In other words, he was the steward in all the assets and all the livestock and all the bookkeeping and all the investments and all the expenditures and all the employees were managed, were entrusted to Joseph and that was committed to him. Well, think about it this way. That's what God does with the word of God to the minister. And the minister becomes very jealous over the word of God because he has to because God committed it to him. There's a second case. And and Joseph was a good man because notice what happens in Genesis 39. We know this account. The wife spurned him. She She was spurned by Joseph. She got angry. She told the bold face lie. Joseph got thrown in jail. And when Joseph's in jail in a very short order, guess what the warden of the jail did? He committed all the responsibility of the jail to Joseph. Notice this language. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand All the prisoners that were in the prison and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Now I'd like you to think of committing, being committed to like a babysitter. So, so, So you're going away, you've got your little bitty baby, a couple months old, and you've got to go away and you're, maybe you're, you're going on a date with your husband or, or maybe you're going and you've got to run an errand or you've got to take another child to the doctor and you've got this babysitter and, and, and you give your baby to this little bitty babysitter. Do you realize what you're doing? You're entrusting that baby for the time that she has it. The babysitter, that little baby. And you're ex- what's your expectations of the babysitter? Can be very diligent. Make sure there's nothing choking in her arm reach, right? Because what happens to a little baby? Everything goes right to the mouth. And you're going to expect that when it's uh, uncomfortable, it's, that babysitter is going to change a diaper? You know, all, all the care that it's that trust. Well, when I look at the Word of God, that's exactly what God does with a minister in terms of his Word. 
there's, there's an extra special responsibility there. So let's go back to our pastoral epistles. Here's three more. But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me, this is Paul, according to the commandment of God my Savior. So what happened was, is God took something very precious, just like you would your little baby to a babysitter. God would take something very precious, and the thing that was very precious was his word, and he committed it to Paul. And you know what Paul did? Paul took it and committed it to Timothy. Let's read the next verse I have here, 1 Timothy 1.18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. What did he commit? The prophecies. What's the prophecy? The word of God. So the word of God was committed to Paul. Paul committed it to Timothy. And look what he tells Timothy to do. 2 Timothy 2, 2. And the things thou hast heard of me, the word of God, and you can go back and after it to see the context, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So, so God is very serious about his word, and he's talking about this chain of passing it along. Now, notice what it doesn't say. He didn't commit the commentaries. He didn't commit the traditions that, the way Grandpa used to do it. He committed the Word of God. Now, you're going to say, Brother Dalt, this sounds like a message you preached in the spring called Scripture Alone. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of parallels. But the difference is, is the responsibility on a pastor is far greater than the responsibility of a regular member. There is also a protective capacity. Here's two more. So this is 1 Timothy 6.20. O Timothy, O Dolph, keep that. What's the that? You back up a verse, you find out that that is his word. Keep that which is committed to thy trust avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. But notice what's committed to Timothy. He is exhorting him. 2 Timothy 1.14, the good thing. What's the good thing? Go back one verse and you'll find out it's the sound words. The good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. So, so when I read this... Um, pastoral epistles, the 13 chapters, and I read them over and over, one of the words that popped out at me was the word committed. There is a fiduciary responsibility that I have. This is, this is one of the toughest <clears throat> things that I wrestle with. Because you know, you know me, uh, in the years I've been here, I try to reach out to the community, and I've been in very several Christian outreaches, in what I would call a non-denominational type setting. It's been true at the school where I taught. It's been true at the rescue mission. It's been true in the prison. Do you understand? And what I'm wrestling with as an oath when I was ordained, it's the word, the whole word, and only but the word, but just about every other organization I've been in, there's usually something else. Got it? It's, it's something else. In some way, I've got to keep my oath. But in another way, I do want to reach out, but I don't want to be a hypocrite. 
So somehow I've got to elevate the word, not tear down what they're doing because I'm not there to, but I've got, so I'm, so I'm really careful. And I'll tell you why I do that. I just, oh, well, that's just a different organ. It's not church. That oath was for the church. No, it's every time I talk about God. So mine is always the word, the whole word, nothing but the word. So I wrestle with that. It's just not the non-denominational organizations in the community that I'm trying to do an outreach. It's also among us. I want to tell you something. When I first was starting up and I was starting to study and I was starting to preach, and my father in the ministry was Edward Cagle in Roswell, Georgia. And I was underneath him, and, and he was, oh my, I don't even know. He's probably 30, 40 years older than I am, was, was so he's, he's already long gone. So he's telling me about the way he grew up in the old time. And, and he told me a lot of the traditions and the rules that were not Bible. And, and there's some things that I got frustrated with as a young man. And he says, Brother Dolph, you have no idea what I've been through. Because he's been and seen some improvements. Let me give you some examples. And I'm talking like 100 years ago, when, when, you know, old time. Did you know in the old time, they used to have something called a Bible pulpit? And in many churches, you weren't allowed to bring your own Bible. You had to use the Bible pulpit. Is that in the Word of God? No, not at all. There were times in the old times when they would come together for a meeting, and if six preachers preached or showed up, They preach six preachers. Is that in the Bible? No. Matter of fact, I go to 1 Corinthians 14, and it says, you know what? After three, tell the fourth guy to hush up. He said when he started, and he 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 used to preach sing song. Every once in a while he'd preach, and it'd pop out in him, right? But he says, you know, that wasn't considered preaching unless you were sing songing. Is that in the Bible? Do you think that's really the way Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount? There's no way you can prove that, is it? No. And there's, there's, there's all kinds of notes. Notes were a no-no. It did. Is that in the Bible? No, we've moved past that. Amen? He was able to work through a lot of those things. And and I'm blessed to be on the other side of a lot of those traditions. And I'm thankful for it. But he was tough on me. He'd say, Dolph, okay, here's a message. And I'm going to preach today, but I want you to introduce. You got five minutes. And if the Holy Spirit really gets a hold of you, you got five and a half minutes. (laughs) You're laughing. The old time was the Holy Spirit got a hold of you and you had no control and you just had to go, go, go. No, there's no scripture in that. 1 Corinthians 14, the spirit is subject to the prophets. There's not a lick of scripture for that reasoning. He says, Dolph, you know, there's going to be times where I'm going to say, you got 20 minutes. Don't go 21, go 20. There's some times where I'm going to share the time. You got 30 minutes, and there's some times when you got the whole time, go for it. But there was a time where that wasn't the case. Do you understand? Where did all those rules come from? 
They're not Bible. When I get into a pulpit, whether I'm your pastor or I'm ministering, the word is what's governing, governing me. And there'll be other sources coming in trying to be an authority, but it's not an authority. The only authority I have is the word of God. That's it, period. I'm not mocking them. And, you know, I got to admit, <clears throat> I told you there was a time where they used to have a pulpit Bible. There's something that still irks me when a preacher comes in and his, phone, his Bible's on the phone and he uses his phone. That bugs me. Do I have scripture for it? No. That's just my personal preference. I don't like, I like paper. I like ink. But do I, you got to use a paper copy and not electronic? I got no scripture for that. Do I? No. Do you understand? So, so we can fall into it ourselves. And we've always got to be on guard. I've got to be on guard as your pastor. I am not putting traditions in front of you. It better be the word of God in everything. So I want you to notice here was six verses and there was committed. What was committed? The glorious gospel, the prophecies, his words, sound words, that which thou hearst and his word. That is a big deal. I can't read the pastoral epistles while feeling the weight of the responsibility just like a babysitter would have with a little bitty baby. Do you understand? That's the way how cherished and how protective I am for that. I entitled this message, um, A Good Soldier of Jesus Christ. So you've got to know what you're committed to. And I think as a soldier, a steward, as a curator, and a servant, you're responsible for the Word of God. But also as a soldier, one of the first things as a soldier they tell you to teach you to do, and I haven't been in the service, so... I hope you'll have grace with me. But the first thing I've seen in movies and I've heard from other soldiers is they say, know thy weapon. And when I think as a soldier, they say, know thy weapon, I think of the person that can take the rifle apart and put it back together. I've even seen situations where they'll put a blindfold on a person and they say, take it apart and put it together. That's how intimately they want you to know your weapon. Well, it's the same way with the word of God. As a soldier, you need to know your weapon. And what's your weapon? Your weapon is the Word of God. Okay? You need to know that thing. And I want you to see what it's called in Scripture. And I'll not go to all these references. I'll read them to you. But in 1 Timothy 4, 6, it's called good doctrine, and it's called the words of faith. In 1 Timothy 4, 9, it's called a faithful saying. In 1 Timothy 5, 17, it's called in word and doctrine. In 1 Timothy 6, 3, it's called the doctrine and the words of Jesus Christ. It's called wholesome words. In 2 Timothy 2, 15, it's called the word of truth and the word of God. And in 2 Timothy 3, 16, it says scripture is inspired of God. Okay, so you got your choice. You can use God's word. And then notice all these lists in these 13 chapters. Wow. In 1 Timothy 1.4, it says, Be careful of fables and endless genealogies. In 1.6, it says, Be careful of vain jangling. In 4.1, it says, Be careful of the doctrines of devils. In 4.7, it says, Be careful of profane and old wives' fables. In 1 Timothy 6.20, it says, Be careful of profane and vain babblings. In 2 Timothy 2.23, it says, avoid foolish and unlearned questions. In 2 Timothy 4.3-4, those people are going to have itching ears. They're going to get bored of the Bible, and they're going to want fables and old wives' tales. And then finally, in Titus 1.14, there's the commandments of men. 
So when I read this and I see list after list after list, Paul, why are you telling your sons in the ministry that they, they've, they've been your apprentices for years? They ought to know that. But he told them how many times? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight descriptions right here in 13 chapters. So he's describing what they're supposed to use. And they're saying, just being very clear of what you're supposed to avoid. This is why. And as I told you, when I go to a quote-unquote non-denominational organization and they've got some literature that they use, it's not that I will reject it, but I've got to make sure it harmonizes 100% with the Word of God. And even then, it's still not my authority. The, God, the Bible is my authority. And everywhere I go, I have to sign a little piece of paper. Do I promise to do this? And I always cross out their document and I put the Bible. I do it every single time. And someone, so far no one's ever kicked me out. So notice what it says in Romans 1, 15 and 16. As much as in me, I am ready to preach, what? The gospel. To you that are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Fables, wives' tales, genealogies, vain jangling, the doctors of men. You know what? That's not power. You know where the power is? The power's in here. I don't go. C.S. Lewis wrote some great stuff, but that's not my power. Spurgeon's wrote some great stuff, but that's not my power. God is my power. That's my power. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and everything that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought and obedience. <clears throat> the way I read this, the word of God can pull down strongholds. Babels can't. The word of God can cast down imaginations. Doctrine of men can't do that. Every high thing that exalted the self versus the knowledge of God, I'm going with the knowledge of God. Versus vain jangling. Right? 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, and 6. For our gospel came not only to you in word only, but also in power. The stuff of men does not come in power. The word of God comes in power. And in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were for your sake. And ye became followers of us in the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Ghost. I'm going to present you with the word. Let me read one more here. Hebrews 4, 11, and 12. Let us labor therefore and enter into the rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow and a discerner of the thoughts and the tents and the heart. Now, the word of God there, I believe, would be Christ. Christ is the word, the word made flesh. But notice what the word of God can do. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's quick. It's powerful. It divides asunder the soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow. It discerns. 
Does man's stuff do that stuff? No. The only thing that can do that is God's word. Scripture. Amen? So, I'm sitting here and I'm reading, and I've got, I told you how I do this, I've got a Bible that's in a three-ring binder, and I go put it on the copier there, and I make a bunch of copies, and I read it. And I read it with a fistful of colored marker. And I read it over and over to go, and then a theme will jump out. And here I got blue and green and orange and, and pink. And then I get at it again. I, I got some more. This one I ran and I got lines. Okay. And I just, all these themes are jumping. Up. And, and what I'm saying is, Lord, I don't want to go to your word with a presupposition of what you are and trying to prove what I think, finding the verses to justify what my position is. When I read this way, I'm saying, Lord, I'm an open vessel. Speak to me. What do you want me to know? And when I go, I look and I see the word committed showed six times. And each time what's committed is the word of God. All of a sudden that becomes a huge weight on me. Am I trusting that? Am I, is, is, am I caring for that just like I would a little baby or a grandchild? And if I'm not, I got to wake up. Know thy weapon. Okay, again, this is just a review. What your weapon is, is the word of God. And he calls it good doctrine, words of faith, faithful saying, uh, the word, the doctrine, the doctrine, the words of Jesus Christ, wholesome words, the sound words, the form of the sound words, the word of truth, scripture that's inspired. That's what he says you're supposed to, you're committed to, and that's what you're supposed to protect, and that's what you're supposed to preach, and that's what you're supposed to teach. And then on the flip side of that, in all these chapters, there's all these warnings about watch out for this other stuff. Fables and vain changlings and doctrines of devils and doctrines of men and, 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 and foolish and unlearned questions. Um, I know I've made this point when I was talking about Scripture, but think of the armor of God. We're talking about soldiers. Notice what it says here in Ephesians 6. It says, put on the whole armor of God. And then verse 13, and it says again, put on the whole armor of God. What is the armor of God? And I want you to point out, notice how many pieces of armor is the word. Did you realize three out of seven is the word of God? Look at that. Look at it. Um, Verse 13 says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand, withstand the evil day, and have done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Yes. Having on the breastplate of righteousness your feet shot with the preparation of the gospel. Above all, taking a shield of faith wherein you're able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Three out of the seven are the word of God. So I'm supposed to go into battle against the devil He's, he's eyeballing me from toe to the crown of my head to the heel of my foot. And he's looking, and he's looking for weaknesses. And do you think I'm really going to go into that battle with the words of men? I'm not. I hope you don't either. And if you do, I want another paraclete. You know, does everybody know what a paraclete is? Yeah. A paraclete is a fighting buddy. You know, back in the time of the Roman soldiers and the Greek soldiers, when you went into battle and the armies came together, there was sometimes there was overlap. 
and all your armor was on the front. So if there was some overlap, an enemy soldier could go and just go right in the back because if there was a little bit and he got behind me, right? So you went into battle with a fighting buddy. That fighting buddy was called a paraclete. He had your back. You got it? So you went in in twos so no one could stick you in the back? Well, I want a paraclete armed with the Word of God. Last thing. I talked about what you're committed. You're committed to the Word of God. I want you to a minister is supposed to know thy weapon. And another thing a good soldier does is he trains with his weapon. He practices. So if you got that rifle, that's great. You can take it apart and put it together in, in your sleep. Yes? But I hope you can shoot it straight. And the only way you do that is spend some time on the range. You got to train with your weapon. So notice these verses here. This is what I call sanction behavior. In 1 Timothy 14, it said, four, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 4.13, it says, read the word. In 1 Timothy 4.15, it says, meditate on the word. 1 Timothy 4.16, it says, model the word. 2 Timothy 1.6, it says, stir up the word within you, the gift, the prophecies in you. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says two things. It says, study the word, and it says, rightly divide the word. And then finally in Titus 1.9, it says, hold fast the faithful word. Here's a little illustration I've used for years. I got it from the promise keeper probably in the 90s. They're talking about the word of God. And they use this little, this is not scripture, this is just an illustration, but I think it fits what we just found in scripture. They use the hand. If I was going to grab a hold of something like this microphone here, and I grabbed a hold of that, if I... I have a real good grip if I use all five fingers, right? And if I were to let one or two, I could still hold on that thing, but it's easier to wrestle away from me if I'm only got three out of the five fingers on it. But notice the most important finger is the thumb. Try hanging on something with these four fingers and not have that thumb around there. I can snatch it out of your hand real easy that way. Well, the promise keepers use that, and they say the four fingers represent reading the Word of God, one finger, studying the Word of God, one finger, memorizing the Word of God, one finger, hearing the Word of God preached, another finger, and the thumb, that's meditation. Stop and think about it, how it applies to your life. That's what helps you keep a hold of it and grasp it so no one can wrestle it out of your hand. I like it. And do you realize all those five things are right there? What we just read? Okay. The contrast is non-sanctioned behavior. So I'm thinking about someone that's gripping hold of it real tight with all four fingers and the thumb, and they got a death grip on that word of God. Versus 1 Timothy 1.6, some have swerved off course. 1 Timothy 1.7, some teach what they do not know. 2 Timothy 2.4, some are entangled with the word. 2 Timothy 3.16, some leap captive silly women. Titus 1.11, some teach what they ought not. And Titus 1.16, some do not walk the talk. That's the complete opposite. So there's a sanctioned behavior, those five things. And there's the unsanctioned behavior that's going to... So, so, so that's like my job description. That's my training. That's what I ought to be doing. Let's look at a couple examples. 1 Timothy 1.18, by them that thou mightest war a good warfare. You know, the first thing I did when we walked into church, <clears throat> I know it was 
a song that used to be in our hymnal, and I don't know why they got rid of it. I think a couple versions ago, Onward Christian Soldier. And then 2 Timothy 2, 3, Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So the metaphor is used a lot describing the minister as a soldier, but notice you need to know thy weapon and you need to train with thy weapon. And unfortunately, in this case, the weapon, well, it's not unfortunately. He calls the sword the word of God. So I guess the, strong, the parallel is strong there too. This is my weapon. Just like a saw to a carpenter. Yes, just like paints and an easel to a painter. Just like his tools and an engine to a mechanic. Train with thy weapon. Why? Notice. 2 Corinthians 11.4 For he that cometh preach another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Now the Bible says there are going to come preachers that's going to preach another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. Y'all need to be on guard, right? And the preachers need to be on guard because usually that stuff doesn't happen overnight. They usually start off preaching the right Jesus, the right gospel, and then somehow they get off. You know how they get off? They start reading stuff other than this word. Galatians 1.6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into grace unto another gospel. You know what it is? It's not, it's, it's, it's not another gospel. It's a perverted gospel is what it is. 2 Peter 2.1, but there will be false prophets among these people, and there will be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies in denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. We want to make sure that the, the men that come and fill this pulpit, whether it be after me or for me or during me, that they esteem the word of God, the whole word, and nothing but the word. Listen to them. What are they quoting? The words of men or the words of God? And then finally, 2 Corinthians 4.2, But have renounced the hitting things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Now, usually when we see deceitfully, we think there's malintent there. But you could do it ignorantly by mistake. And you know what? The result's the same. You've got a perversion. You've got a mishandling of the word of God. This is my last set of references. But I want to look at these verses to, know, to show you how highly esteemed the word of God should be. Young people, that you're looking for husbands and wives, this is a pretty good barometer. Job 23, 12, Neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. If you can find someone like that, male or female, you know what? You probably got a keeper. But you know what? To get one of those, you better be one of those. Amen. Do you esteem the word of God more than your necessary food? Wow, that's kind of getting where the rubber hits the road. I got three more verses. Uh -huh. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love the law. It is my meditation all day. When do they talk about God? When do they talk about the Bible? Sunday from 1030 to 12? Or do you hear from all the time? Got it? Psalm 119, 127, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold. Well, you just said it's above food. Now it's above gold. Gold, word of God. 
I like to give you this fact. You know, I think the printing press was Gutenberg. Was it Gutenberg that invented the printing press in like the 1500s? Late 1400s, somewhere around there? Before the printing press, think of how much money you make. In th- think what your income is for one month, multiply it by three. And that's what a copy of the Word of God would cost you before the printing press. Would you pay that much for the Word of God? That's, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Wow. I know after the printing press, we can go the change in our ashtray. We can probably get a copy of the Word of God. Electronically, we can get one for free. But would you pay three months' wages for a copy of the Word of God? This one says, if you're looking for a keeper, you probably would. Your pastor should. And then finally, 1 Peter 2, 2, As newborn banes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. You're not going to grow with the doctrines of men. You're not going to grow with fables and genealogies in the way Grandpa did it. Even though Grandpa might have done a fantastic job. If Grandpa did it and aligned with Scripture, do what Grandpa did. But make sure what Grandpa did aligns with Scripture. It was a weighty subject. I think the rest of them will be a little more lighter. They'll be a little more um, interesting is the one, wrong word, applicable. But, but I think it's time for you to really be considering what the Word of God means to a minister. Because as you look at my age, and I know I'm closer to the end than I'm closer to the beginning, and it comes time to replacing me whenever that may be, I pray it's someone that really values the Word of God. I hope that's what you're looking. I want you to be looking, listening real closely at where their authority is. And if the authority is commentaries or past generations or past pastors or historical writers from 200 years ago or the reform writers, I don't care who it is. You know what? That doesn't have power. There may be some truth in there, but God promises the power is in the Word of God. And that's the man of God you want preaching to your children and your children's children.